This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. I'd say that the people who are going to pay off their mortgage are going to run and they're going to pay off their mortgage. And regardless whether they got the 15 or 30 year mortgage, they're going to pile that money. If you're going to do it early in life, you know, 15 years is half a lifetime away. If you're 30 buying your, your first home, right? 30 years is a lifetime away. So if you're going to pay it off substantially sooner than that, you're going to do it either way. is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we are going to do three things. First, we're going to answer a question from the Marriage, Kids, and Money community about how to choose between a 15-year mortgage and a 30-year mortgage. With all the home buying going on right now, I thought that was kind of an appropriate topic as well as might help our friend asking the question. Second, we are back with our Be The Change segment. For those of you who haven't heard of the Be The Change segment, this is a segment that we do three to four-ish times a year where we highlight a charity or nonprofit that is going out of their way to give kids a better shot at life. And this month, we're going to be hosting Abby Foyer from Donors Choose. This is an organization that makes it easy for anyone to help a teacher in need. And last but not least, my daughter Zoe's going to join me for some random chatter <laughs> and a money quiz. And she's going to read our review of the month. All right, let's jump into today's show. I received a question from Samantha on Instagram at Andy Hill MKM, and here it is. Help, Andy. <laughs> we're ready to finally buy our first home, and we're battling between getting a 15-year mortgage and a 30-year mortgage. My husband wants a lower payment, so we have options, and she put that in quotes, have options, and I want to pay off our mortgage faster. What should we do? Samantha, thank you so much for touching base with me, and congratulations for making the decision to buy your first home. That is a big moment with a huge impact on your life. So kudos for weighing the pros and cons before taking the plunge, taking the big leap. I definitely have some opinions on the 30-year mortgage versus the 15-year mortgage, but you all have heard my opinion so much on this show. I thought it would be fun to invite a couple of true real estate experts on the show to help me to answer it. So I'm excited to be joined by Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench, the hosts of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast and the authors of the new book, First Time Homebuyer, The Complete Playbook to Avoiding Rookie Mistakes. With their combined 30 years of real estate experience, Mindy and Scott have been featured in major media like Forbes, USA Today, and US News and World Report. When they are not helping us all win with real estate, they both love getting outside and enjoying all that beautiful Colorado has to offer. Welcome to the show, Mindy and Scott. 
Wow. Thank you. I feel a lot of pressure to really bring it today. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for having us. Well, that was the whole point. I want to make you feel really nervous and lots of pressure. No, no, not at all. We're going to have some fun. We're going to help Samantha out. Why don't we dive in right away? 15 year versus 30 year. This is a decision people struggle with. They're ready to make the plunge into buying a home. How can a couple like Samantha and her husband, you know, sort of weigh the pros and cons here? So I love this question because on the surface, it seems like such an easy question. Oh, of course I'll get the 15 year because then I'll pay my mortgage off in half the time. But when you dive into it a little bit more, you see that there are differences in interest rates. There are differences in monthly payment and there's differences in the total amount of money that you're paying over the life of the loan. Because when you borrow money, you don't just borrow $5,000 and pay back $5,000. You borrow $5,000 and pay back $5,500 or whatever. So I reached out to my go-to lender, John Lalonde from Cross Country Mortgage. I said, hey, can you just give me a real quick rate quote for today so I can make an example? And he gave me way more than I asked. (laughs) He said, on a $500,000 purchase... With 25% down, assuming 740 credit score, he said a 30-year loan is 3.375% interest. And a 15-year loan is 2.75% interest. So right now, it seems like the 15-year wins. But let's look at your monthly payment. Principal and interest, because you can't do taxes or insurance you know, for this hypothetical situation, principal and interest on a 30-year loan will be $1,658. But on a 15-year loan, your, your payment is more. It's $2,545, $2,545. So that's an $887 a month difference. Over the life of the loan, if you're just making the basic plain mortgage payment, you're going to pay $596,829 on your 30-year, but only 458000 on your 15 year. So that's $138,760 difference. I would prefer to have $138,000 in my pocket with the rate difference being only 0.625%. This makes it a little more difficult to make a hard and fast decision. However, John further went in and gave me a fun fact. If you keep the 30 year option, but made the 15-year payment. So you you take the 30-year with its $1,600 a month payment, but you pay the $2,500 payment. Some people do this for the security of being able to pay the lesser amount if they needed to. You would only be adding one year and eight months to your mortgage. So you take the 30-year, you've got the lower required payment, but you pay more towards the principal. You're now paying off your mortgage in 16 years and eight months. So- My expert opinion would be to get the 30-year and make the extra payments as you feel like it, as you can afford it, as, you know, things come up, then you can drop back down to the 30-year mortgage payment if you'd like. The reason being, and I I say this a lot, I think it's kind of cliche, but it's true. A 15-year mortgage has to be paid off in 15 years. A 30-year mortgage can be paid off in 15 years or three years or 27 years but you can't extend your 15-year mortgage without some penalties or fines or foreclosure or whatever. So I like the 30-year, especially at these super low rates. I am of the mindset that you don't pay off your mortgage early at all. 
but I do other things with that money. If there's no other plans to do with the money, then pay off your mortgage at your leisure. I like that flexibility. And it sounds like that's where Samantha was going, maybe with her husband's sort of inkling of having the options. Scott, which of these do you choose for your life? You've bought a lot of homes. Are you a 15-year guy or a 30-year guy? I've actually only bought homes house hacking style where I rent out portions of it and intend to keep the properties as rentals downstream. And I have always opted for the 30-year mortgage in my experience. And the reason for that is the the increase in cash flow and increase in flexibility. I, I see the loan as an asset when I'm borrowing it to, to buy rental properties. And so I don't I don't want to pay it off necessarily sooner than than necessary. I, I think that the the leverage I'm getting is is beneficial and safer when I have a 30 year mortgage versus a 15 year mortgage. I like that option. You know, I'm sort of a mortgage payoff junkie. So I really like having this conversation with you guys to see the different sides. So if I could ask you, Scott, for maybe just devil's advocate, we're saying, hey, you're giving yourself the option to pay off this mortgage if that's important to you. Do you see a lot of people having as much discipline as maybe real estate experts like you or people like me who are really caring about investing actually taking that money and paying down the mortgage if they pick the 30 year? I think the people who are going to pay off their mortgage, and, and this is not from my experience. I actually haven't met a lot of people who have paid off their home mortgage and followed those journeys. But if I were to guess, I'd say that the people who are going to pay off their mortgage are going to run and they're going to pay off their mortgage. And regardless whether they got the 15 or 30 year mortgage, they're going to pile that money. If you're going to do it early in life, you know, 15 years is half a lifetime away. If you're 30 buying your your first home, right? 30 years is a lifetime away. So if you're going to pay it off substantially sooner than that, you're going to do it either way. And if you're gung ho about paying off the mortgage right away, then then maybe the 15 year makes sense. And you're going to be pilot on much more than the 2,500 a year payment. Great. Take the lower interest rate and, and run even faster. But I, I think that for for a lot of people, the flexibility and lower risk associated with the home mortgage is going to be there. And and I, I am one of those, I think, reasonably disciplined people with my portfolio where I'm not taking the cash flow and then buying a boat. I'm, I'm taking the cash flow and generally reinvesting it into the next thing. Yeah. You know, one of the main comments that I get, whether it's on the podcast or in social media or one of my YouTube videos where I'm like, Hey, pay off your mortgage. Here's a lot of benefits. A lot of the comments that I get, Mindy are, Hey, this is not the financially optimized way of utilizing your money. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. That is one of the big reasons why people advocate not paying off their mortgage. Yeah, and and I see that. I mean, it's sort of this, and I guess Samantha maybe has to answer this for herself and discussions with her husband. Is this the wealth building, financially optimized choice, or is this a choice that we're going to be making for, I guess, our emotional well-being? Because I would agree from somebody who's paid off their mortgage early that, yeah, you crunch the numbers, I could have made a lot more money in the stock market from 2013 to 2017 when I was aggressively paying off my mortgage. But the, I guess, emotional relief that I had when I was not making close to $2,000 payments each month to my mortgage that allowed me to transition into a career that I love was priceless for me. So I guess it all comes down to your personal interests. Would you agree, Scott? 
Absolutely. Personal finance is personal to steal Mindy's favorite quote. Um, <laughs> so th- there is no, there is no right answer here with any of that kind of stuff. If you are spending less than you bring in, you are going to become wealthy. And, and it's a matter of, you know, that, that rate of return really only begins to matter when your asset base is 500,000, a million or more, like what's a 10% return on a hundred thousand bucks is 10 grand. Hope, you know, hopefully if you're building up, building wealth, you're making more than 10 grand or saving more than that on an annualized basis. So the, the return there isn't material 10 versus 12 versus eight versus three. doesn't really matter, but that begins to matter a lot when your portfolio gets past 500 thousand a million that can be the difference between retiring and that can that can make a years many years of difference so i think that that portfolio allocation can can be important there one thing to think about though is that if you want to be free from you know wage income or work toward financial independence you can't and early in life you know well before retirement age you can't have all your wealth in your home equity and retirement accounts. You have to find a way to build other after-tax assets and cash. And so if your only investment is your retirement account and home equity, I think you're you're just not going to benefit, you're not going to reap the benefits of freedom that you could be if you're building other assets simultaneously. So, you know, it all comes down to savings rate. If you can get the saving rate high enough, you can do have all your cake and eat it too. But there's a a challenge there that again, there's no right answer to, but there are I think wrong answers where you're, you know, hey, I got one month of savings, home equity and, and retirement accounts. I can't quit my job. I can't even leave. I can't even take a three month sabbatical. That's not that's not I think there's there's better ways to go about it than that. I would agree. Yeah. Having different levels of freedom and that first level of freedom for a lot of people listening could be, hey, I've got three months of money in the bank. And so if something really bad happened, I'd have some options. Or even if you feel great about it, it's like, hey, I have... 12 months, depending on this, hey, this pandemic we're going through, maybe people, that type of freedom for them personally is just having enough money in the bank to get through something crazy. So Samantha, we're, I guess what we're saying here is they both have benefits, 15 year and 30 year. It really boils down to what your goals are and, and hearing from both you and your husband, where your husband's saying, I'd like to have those options. And you're saying, I want to pay off the mortgage faster. Maybe as Mindy alluded to in the beginning, Maybe you go with the 30-year, you have some aggressiveness with paying down the mortgage if that's important to you, and and ergo, important to your husband to do that together. So I appreciate you guys walking through this with me and having a little fun. I really think it would be fun for people to learn a little bit more about your real estate journey. Scott, you poked at it a little bit with the house hacking. Why don't we start with you? When did you decide real estate was going to be a part of your financial independence path? I graduated college in 2013 and then discovered Mr. Money Mustache around that same time, a fun blog on personal finance and became a huge jealous fan of this. I was financial freedom through badassity. How do I save as much <laughs> as I possibly can and you know, get my lifestyle costs really low, apply that all into index funds? And I thought, okay, this is exactly what I want to do. But 7, 10, 15 years is still a very long time. How can I shorten that even further? And so that's where I began to kind of couple the Mr. Money Mustache wealth building approach, the really thrifty and and and, and low-cost lifestyle with real estate. And I was like, okay, my biggest expense is housing. What if I could eliminate that? And that's where I came across this concept of house hacking. And at 23, 24 years old, 
I bought my first duplex. I put down 12, 5%, $12,000 on a $240,000 duplex, rented out one side for 1100, brought a roommate for 550 on the other side, and basically was able to live for free or very low cost, you know, probably maintenance and all that kind of stuff I was doing. Maybe, you know, you could argue I was paying a little bit to live, but still a lot better than, than paying rent. And so that was kind of my starter journey. And then over the years, I bought a couple more properties and now a portfolio in Denver here with a little under 2 million in assets with a partner and been growing from there. That's incredible. And I understand you are a newly married man. So we're talking to Samantha about her situation. Maybe they have a slight difference in opinion on where to go with their home buying journey. How do you incorporate your wife's passions and her desires and and everything with regard to that with your real estate plans? People make fun of me sometimes because we we actually discussed all of our goals and this kind of stuff on our honeymoon one of those days. <laughs> got the spreadsheet and all that kind of good stuff. But but basically we kind of decided we have a, a a pretty good situation where I I am financially we are financially free, right? And and that was something that I brought into the to the marriage. And because of that, we could live anywhere. We could have a ton of options. And so we actually decided based on that conversation to rent right now. And I currently rent rather than own because I don't think I'm going to be in this location for that long or want that, those options within a year or two. So we kind of got a place that, Hey, we're going to, we're going to rent and purchase the living conditions that we want in the short run and then kind of sustain that forever, basically. And if one day we decide we want to live in a certain spot four or five, 10 plus years, then we might settle down and buy. But basically we're kind of on the same page that, one of the thing, great things about pursuing financial freedom early in life is that you can have these options to, to experience different locations and different lifestyles over the course of your lifetime. And, and that's something that we want to maintain the flexibility to achieve. That's incredible. And especially after the year that we just had, having some flexibility to work where you want and kind of enjoy the country is fantastic. Nobody wants to live in fancy condos right now either. And it's wonderful. So we got a great deal. (laughs) That is true. That is true. Yeah, you don't want to be locked up in a a place right now. Absolutely. So you're talking about having long-term flexibility for where you want to go. You've got 2 million in assets right now. Do you see this portfolio growing more? I mean, what are your long-term plans as you sort of look maybe 10 years from now? Where do you see your real estate path going? I really like bigger pockets. And so real estate's only one component of my portfolio, right? I've got the real estate portfolio, stocks and index funds, retirement accounts, interest in bigger pockets. And then Mindy and I are authors. So the books are another, something else that we call it. So the goal is kind of just keep having fun doing what I, what I love with this stuff, living the best lifestyle that I can with, with my wife. And, and the idea would be to continue building that diversified portfolio kind of with the the pillars of five with those four major asset classes, and then continue piling any savings that I generate on top of that into more diversified income streams. So it's kind of, it's a luxurious position to be in, but I'll start with the house hack with those kinds of things. So that's, that's, I guess what's, what's next year for us. I don't know if that's too vague. No, I love it. You've got multiple passive and happy active income streams. I love it. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Mindy, let's jump over to you. I would really be interested to understand when did you buy your first home? And then when did you, I guess, realize this could be something that could make a difference in your family's journey? So I bought my first home. It was a condo and I bought it in 1996. I paid $49,900 for this fabulous, amazing condo. I bought it because I was tired of throwing my money away on rent. This was a hundred years ago that I bought my first condo. And back then you bought a house. That's what you do. You buy a house as you become an adult 
they're renting is for fools. Sorry, Scott. And <laughs> so I bought a condo. It had, it came with a $200 a month HOA fee, which is not uncommon. It had a pool. I thought, oh, this is going to be so awesome. I used the pool zero times in the four <laughs> years that I lived there. So that was definitely money well spent. The second month that I lived there, the HOA sent a letter that said, hey, we need a new boiler for all the buildings because heat was included. That was another thing that was really desirable to me. I like to be in a warm space. Now I have learned to put on a sweater, but at the time I wanted to be able to crank the heat as much as possible. Hey, all the boilers are failing. We need to replace them all. We're going to double your assessment for the foreseeable future. I I don't know if they had a time limit on it or not, but so every month that I lived there minus the first month, they had a special assessment of double my HOA fees, which was not something that I had planned on. And I thought this was going to be a horrible, horrible thing. But it turned out that when I got married, my husband actually had a house. And in my mind at the time, a house was better than a condo. And I was very upset that they pulled this bait and switch on me. Oh, hey, now you got to pay twice as much for this HOA fee. I didn't do any research on the HOA or, you know, there's a lot of mistakes I made there. But when I sold it, I sold it for $75,000. And if you remember, I only bought it for 50. So I just made $25,000. I did all the math at the end of owning the property and it cost me $1,000 a year to live there. So that's not so bad. At a time that places, similar places were renting for $500 a month, I spent $1,000 and lived there for four years, well, $4,000 and lived there for four years. So it turned out to be a good decision. I loved the fact that I sold it for, how does that math work, Scott? 50% more than I paid for it? 150% yeah. more than I paid for it? However that math works. I was super excited about that appreciation. I did some work to it, mostly, co- well, it was all cosmetic because it's a condo. And I was so excited when I sold it and got that huge check. It paid off all of my random little bits of debt. And I entered my marriage debt free. And I thought, man, I want to do this again. So we fixed up my husband's house and we moved to a condo in the city. The second condo that we owned that also had a special assessment, I think the second month that we lived there. And I was like, really? You can't do this. They can, and they do. So if you're going to buy a condo, make a really, really, really informed decision. It can be a great Oh, you rent the condo. Or you rent the condo. Yeah, rent the condo because then you're not responsible for it as the tenant. But this is back when home ownership was the must-have. So we do a real estate investment strategy called the live-in flip. You move into a house that is not very pretty. You make it very pretty. And then you sell it. If you live there for two years, you don't pay any capital gains. So I have made... Gosh, probably six or eight hundred thousand dollars that I have paid this much tax on because it was my primary residence, and I that's just a made zero it nice for everyone listening. Oh yeah, that's a zero. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, we're doing the video and the audio, everybody. Yep, zero. <laughs> zero. I paid as much tax on that capital gains as everybody listening combined. We all paid the same amount. It was zero. And I like that. I would happily pay my fair share of taxes, but when my fair share is zero, according to the government, I'll pay that. That's a lot. I mean, I don't make six or $800,000 a year right now. And that's over the course of like 20 years, but still. 
That's an incredible amount of money. And it sounds like it's something you both enjoy. You know, some people might hear that and be like, you know, I, I really like living in my home for 25 years. I love having a spot. But to you guys, it's an adventure and you enjoy it. Is that right? I think that's really important to say we do enjoy the process of fixing up. We enjoy the construction project. We do all the work ourselves. We have learned all the things. I, you know, big, huge, adding a second story, I'll let somebody else come in and do the structural parts, but we do everything else ourselves. And it's fun to see it. It's exciting to know that I can spend a little bit more on the tile because I'm going to pay zero to install it because I'm doing it. And yeah, 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 your time is worth money or whatever, but I get all that time and money back when I sell it for a great big chunk of change. I will give you a real life example. I just sold a house last Friday. We bought it for $176,000 in 2013. We put about 100,000 of our dollars into the house, paying somebody to add on a second story, buying the materials and all of that. And we closed last week for $598,000. Wow, that is incredible. <laughs> That's incredible. And the gain is tax-free. And the gain is tax-free. Yeah, all three of us on this call right now paid the same amount of tax on that profit. That is incredible. So we got Scott with the house hack, Mindy with the live and flip. These could be real options for Samantha and her husband as they, you know, get in and they say, hey, well, you know, maybe we want to get something new or upgraded in a couple of years, fix this thing up, flip it. Or, hey, if we want to have some people help us to pay our mortgage each month, which I did too, Scott, when I was in my 20s as well, it helped me a lot. I got three roommates and paid $0 for my mortgage, which was fantastic. So these are great strategies. Thank you both for walking through your history with real estate. And obviously you've got a long way to go. Let's talk about some, you know, first time homebuyer stuff because we got people listening. We're talking about real estate now. You guys just wrote a book on it. You guys both sort of made this poking fun at wasting money with rent. Let's talk about that a little bit. Is that a dangerous concept for people to think I need to buy a house no matter what, because renting is wasteful? Yes, it is yeah. absolutely dangerous. My outdated thoughts are from the 90s, the late 90s, before the internet was invented. I guess the internet was then, but like nobody knew anything about this. Nobody talked about this. It is not always a bad idea to rent. And Scott is living proof of that. He's the CEO of biggerpockets.com, the real estate investing social network. And while he does invest, he also lives in a rental property instead of owning his property because it doesn't make financial sense for him to buy a house that he might not be living there forever in and also does not plan to fix it up and make it beautiful and then sell it. The biggest thing that's impacting your decision to buy versus rent is closing costs. When you buy a property, you're paying one, two, three percent of the property's price in closing costs. That's three to six thousand dollars in a three hundred thousand dollar home or maybe 9,000, depending on, on where you are. They can vary by location. When you sell a property, you're going to pay seven, eight, nine percent seven or 8% most likely in, in seller paid closing costs. So if you're adding that up, you can assume roughly nine or 10% of the property's purchase price is going to get eaten by these closing costs. Those are things like inspections, appraisals, mortgage closing costs and points. And then on the sell side, you've got the really big one, which is the five, six, sometimes greater, sometimes less. There's no specific amount necessarily, but on the the agent fees, both the listing agent that's going to help you sell your property and the buyer agent that's going to represent the buyer 
Those fees are usually paid by the seller in most cases, alongside like title insurance, those types of things. So if I'm putting, if I'm buying a $30,000, $300,000 home and putting 10% or $30,000 down, basically if I were to turn around and sell it tomorrow, I'd have no equity left because it would be, it would get eaten up by those things. And so that's, I think the, the key thing to think about in the decision to buy versus rent. Yes. When I'm owning, I'm benefiting on average from appreciation and I'm benefiting from loan amortization as I slowly pay down by mortgage. But for those two things to really work out to be better than renting, you have to be there for a while and allow those things that those average rates of appreciation and, and other items to uh, other loan amortization to take effect. And so that can be, I think, a five to seven year on average timeline. And so that that's why the intent to stay in the property, I think, is, is a really big factor. And for me, my intent to stay in the next place I was going to live was not that long, which is why I didn't, I didn't do that. Now, you can own the property for longer. So if you buy the place like I did for my house hacks and intend to just keep it as a rental... Now I'm going to own the place for a lot longer than that five to seven year period. And so it, it, you know, that, that gives me the advantage of allowing time to be my friend on that property. The lifestyle I wanted to live today, you know, given all the other things going on, if I, in order to buy this place, I'd probably have to drop $2 million or buy a $2 million asset and put a large down payment down. I was not willing to take that risk as, as part of my, my decision with this. So that, that's why I decided that renting was a better option for me to get the lifestyle that I wanted in, in the current situation. And having the flexibility to make the choice when you want to, because if you're in there and you've made that decision, your flexibility is reduced. And my unit is not $2 million. The, the complex that I'm living in, the fourplex would probably be around a $2 million complex. So <laughs> I was going to say, are you yeah, living in a $2 up, yeah. million dollar condo? I need <laughs> no, to come visit. No, no, that is, yeah. <laughs> I think you're working at a place that would appreciate somebody doing well in real estate. So, so don't worry about sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are some other big mistakes people make? Obviously we've talked about the mortgage and I think a lot of people focus on that. Can I afford it with the mortgage? What are some other mistakes that people make as they're approaching to buy their first home? At the highest level, the biggest mistake is not considering your exit options thoroughly when you go to buy. I believe that most people, when they buy their first home, are doing the a version of the buy and pray approach, where they, they're buying a home, assuming that they're going to live at it forever or that it will go up in value over time. And I think that when you when you do this, you you a lot of people overestimate the length that they're going to be staying in the property or the odds that they're going to experience enough appreciation in a short period for it to be worthwhile. So I think if you can go in and think through there, there has ideally with my first home purchase, I'm going to create a situation as rapidly as possible where the following three statements are true. One, I can continue living in this place indefinitely happily. So that's the, that's the exit option everyone intuitively gets. But if you are like me and a little bit more numbers happy and you are miserable living in the place because you didn't think through that you want to actually like it there, you're actually causing yourself a big financial issue because you're going to want to move sooner than otherwise. So you do have to make sure that you like the place. And if you're the numbers person, you do have to listen to your spouse who and make sure that they're happy in the place, whatever place that you end up moving into. Otherwise, you're going to lose a major financial component of what's going on. The second is I want to be able to sell the property at a profit right after that closing cost phenomena. And you can do that by experiencing market appreciation, buy and pray. It can be very good to at least put 
you know, think through the things that might allow you the better odds of succeeding with the buy and pray approach. But the other way to do that is to add value to the property the way that Mindy did. So the more ways you can find to do that, especially lower cost or more accessible ways for your first time home purchase, the better things like, you know, funky smell or, you know, something that needs some paint or to be cleaned up, but nothing, nothing perhaps big and major to the foundation or the roof or these other big ticket items that might be a little bit more inaccessible to a first time buyer. And then the third option is to keep the property as a cash flowing rental, either with short term rental or long term rental tenants. So if you can put yourself in that position a year after purchase, where all three of those things are true, I'm sitting on a pile of equity. I've got the option to move and keep my place as a rental, or I can continue living here happily. You're in a really good spot. That's the maximum flexibility that your your purchase can get you. If the fewer of those options that are true, or the worst those options, for example, I lose $100 a month by renting it out versus $500 a month renting out. Well, that, that's a big difference in risk profile in order to keep it as a rental. But the more of those things that are true, I think the better off you are. That's why this is a big decision and talking through it and making sure it's a fit for both you and your spouse if this is a decision you're making together as a couple is a smart way to go. Mindy, I know that you've spent a lot of time buying homes and this is one of these markets right now that depending on where people live, this could be really super tight. Like, okay, somebody's listening and they're like, I got the money, I've saved up, I just cannot find a quality home. How can people get through this process, especially as we're in the spring selling season right now, and find a home that works for them. Are there some tricks that real estate agents use for people to get in a home that's just in a super tight market? So I'm really glad you asked this question because I am a licensed agent. I am helping people buy houses, not every day, but certainly every month. And right now is literally the tightest market I've ever seen in my whole life. I'm seeing properties go on the market. And when we make an offer, we are one of eight offers, one of 25 offers, one of, you know, 30 offers. Somebody posted in one of my agent Facebook groups the other day, they were one of 80 offers on a property. I'm like, (laughs) I only had two offers on my house when I listed it a month ago. I should have waited a month. It's difficult. And it is frustrating. It's so frustrating when you're like, oh, I like this house. I have 30 minutes to see it because they're only letting you in for 30 minute windows. I have 30 minutes to see it. I have to make a decision. I have to make a four, five, six hundred thousand dollar decision in 30 minutes. And I might not even get it, even though I'm offering over asking price because somebody else is also offering over asking, but they're also saying, I'm not going to have a home inspection. And if there's a gap between what the home appraises for and what I offered, I'll cover that. So when I'm offering on a house that's listed at 525, when when somebody else is offering 585 and they'll cover the appraisal gap and they aren't going to ask you for any home inspection issues, that's a difficult place for you to be in, especially if you're not super financially savvy, super real estate savvy, you don't know what's wrong with that house. As the seller, I can totally understand why they would take that offer over your offer where you're saying, I want a home inspection and I'm you want an appraisal deadline, an appraisal contingency is what it's called. I can understand that. And I do think that right now we are in such a tight market. The next probably month or so might not be a great time for you to be looking for a house. 
it's a great time for you to be educating yourself on the process of buying a house. But I do think that more and more people are going to start saying, my neighbor just sold their house for $750,000. I thought it'd be worth, you know, four twenty-five. So maybe I should start putting my house on the market too. And right now there's, it's a tight market because there isn't any place to, to buy. But once more people start to sell their house, I think it'll loosen up a little bit. So if you're out there and you're one of eight offers and you didn't win or one of 20 offers that you didn't win, continue to look at houses that interest you and continue to be in the market. I'm getting really awesome at writing offers. I can write an offer super fast. So your agent is you know, writing offers for you and they're writing offers for everybody else and just get in there and see what you can get. And I would say don't waive the home inspection. And don't agree to cover the appraisal gap. I think that's setting yourself up for a financial misstep. Great advice. Partner with an excellent real estate agent that's going to be your advocate. Be patient. If the one with 80 offers is the one you really, really want because you're passionate about it, you know, don't compromise on the things that are going to you know, potentially put you in a sticky situation with your new home purchase. So both of you, thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation. Let's talk about this new book. Where can people find it and when can they find it? The book is called First Time Home Buyer: The Complete Playbook to Avoiding Rookie Mistakes, and it is available on March 8th at biggerpockets.com slash homebuyerbook or available on March 23rd at every place you can buy a book. Excellent. Very cool. And everybody who's listening to a podcast right now, tell people where they can listen to Bigger Pockets Money iTunes, whatever the Google thing is, where podcasts are found. <laughs> Google <laughs> Play, I believe. iOS. Yeah. yeah, but but yeah, Bigger Pockets Money, where we uh, you can find us on YouTube if you're interested in watching us and and Mindy's you know facial expressions whenever I say you know have great jokes and those kinds of things. But yeah, we've got a good, we've have a good time there. We talk about personal finance, financial independence, and kind of every story we can get our hands on from every background we can think of on that journey with money. Well, everybody, if you enjoy this show, definitely check out Bigger Pockets Money. Type it into your favorite podcast player right now. Check it out. Scott and Mindy, thank you so much for your time today. Andy, thanks thank for you, having Andy. us. This was fun. We'll be back to the show after a word from our sponsor. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work-optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> if you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. 
Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot, and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes, and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. And use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 2024. Marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. Let's jump back into the show. For our Be The Change segment this month, we are featuring Donors Choose, an organization that makes it easy for anyone to help a teacher in need. And with the year we've just had, teachers continue to be shining heroes for our kids. I've invited the EVP of Marketing and Growth from Donors Choose, Abby Foyer, on the show today. We are going to discuss the state of teaching in America, really, and what we can do to help. Welcome to the show, Abby. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Abby, you and I were chatting a little bit before the call that it's been kind of a wild year for parents as well as teachers. How have teachers been affected by the rapid changes that we saw over the last year? It's definitely been a year, I think, for all of us and for teachers. Three quarters of teachers in the fall when we surveyed our community on Donors Choose were teaching remotely. Today, as we were just discussing, a lot of teachers and students are starting to return to the classroom, but 75% of them are still either teaching remotely or in hybrid teaching environments. And what that means that you just alluded to is a lot of uncertainty. What we've been seeing from teachers is that even those who've been teaching for 10, 20, 30 years, those veteran teachers who in a different school year, have their lesson plans that they rely on, know how to get set up for the school year. They've had to reinvent the wheel. And it's been like starting from year one for every teacher across the country as they think about how to make learning work in whatever classroom environment they have. And I know that a lot of your, your parents are listeners and folks who've been directly impacted by this for their kids as well. And one thing I wanted to call out is that, you know, that's how the pandemic's really affecting all teachers. At Donors Choose, we focus on the communities with the greatest needs across the country. And what we've really been hearing from teachers in those communities is not just that that uncertainty and constant change is a challenge, but that they're often not seeing their kids be able to connect if they don't have internet or if they're working a job to support their families during a challenging economic time. They're also seeing a lot of needs pop up around basic materials. So happy to get more into that, but it's interesting to think about the differing experiences for different teachers across the country. COVID sort of highlighted a lot of the existing areas that were were lacking for a lot of teachers. This isn't a unique challenge for teachers, right? I mean, this has happened pre-COVID. Absolutely. And some of the the normal kind of trends that we see in a year from teachers, like back to school, a lot of teachers ask for basic supplies, for example, or furniture. But we're also seeing a lot of changes where 
if you don't have a classroom, you don't need furniture. And when it comes to the basic materials, we've seen a really big uptick there. Because if you're teaching in person, even during coronavirus, where five scissors might have worked before for a classroom of 20 students, Today, you actually need 20 pairs of scissors for that same class of students. If you're teaching remotely and you have a kid who has siblings and they have a house where they are able to connect with bandwidth, but they only have one computer or they have multiple devices, but they're all in one room. You can imagine them needing headphones for those kids. You know, you and I have the, the bare minimum here when we're having an interview of those headphones and connected device. And, and so those needs have only grown. And, and we've seen some really interesting projects come in from teachers who are trying to, to help their students and, and get their own workspaces set up as well. Yeah. Well, we've talked about it from the teacher's perspective. Let's talk about it from the kid's perspective. What is this, I guess, lack of supplies? What does this lack of internet and access do to a child long-term for their education? So what we've been hearing from from news sources and, and from, you know, I think it was Deloitte or McKinsey who just did a study that kids are learning, you know, losing a whole year of learning here, especially if they're not able to make it to school. And in a normal moment, right, the reason that, um, and a little background on Donors Choose, just in case folks haven't you know, come across us as an organization, Donors Choose is a site where any public school teacher can come and post a request for resources or experiences that their students need to learn. So you can post a project for a computer or books or volleyballs or a field trip in normal times to a local museum and, and bring that to your kids. And we bring a lot of funders to the table. So we work with partners and we work with individual donors who come and help to get those projects funded. And to put it plainly, if a kid, whether during coronavirus or normal times, doesn't have a computer available to learn to type, they can't learn to type at the level that that teacher might want if they don't have that classroom set. Or if they don't have a classroom library of books to inspire them to love reading or to see people like themselves in the books that they're reading in school, they might not learn to love reading as much as another kid who has access to those resources. And at Donors Choose, we often talk about those types of examples because it can be easy to get lost in the numbers, right? Where you're like, we fund this many projects or bring this many dollars. But what's most inspiring to us is to hear that story of a kid who um, got a book funded and it changed the way that they thought about reading. That's incredible. Well, let's talk about some of those shining examples. What are some of your favorites when you tell people, hey, this is what I do for a living? Like, I'm sure they're like, well, tell me a story. Tell us one of your favorites. We actually just had a really big match offer on our site this week that we call Fill Every Shelf, which is the moment every year where we embrace reading. And that's, you know, exciting in a year where you can read from home, you can read from school, right? It's all the more important. And a teacher wrote back to us, she had a project funded through this initiative. It raised over a million dollars for classrooms this week. And we had over 14,000 donors come out to our site and make a donation. And, and over 7,500 teachers got a project funded on our site. And one of them, I'm just going to read you in her words, because they are so much better than mine. She said, yesterday, I was blessed to have three projects funded, and a donor even gave me a $100 gift card for my next project. When I shared my excitement with my students, with tears in my eyes, telling them how many people believe in them, a little boy came up to my desk. You see, he doesn't have the best home life and wanted to find out if people really helped us, people we've never even met. I showed him my donor's choose page 
and let him read the messages from donors. He looked up at me and said, wow, there really is kindness in the world. I will never forget that moment and how impactful Donors Choose is on my students by not only providing materials, but for showing my students there is kindness in this world. Oh, that is so beautiful. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. That warms my heart. And that's the whole purpose of why we do this segment on the show is that we are all about helping young families build wealth so that they can make a difference in the world. They can be the change that they want to see in their country, their community, and the world. And sharing that example is just the perfect example, especially of the times that we're in right now. We're in a education crisis, really. I mean, whatever side you're on, teachers, parents, everybody realizes that this is a tough situation. So again, thank you so much for sharing that example. You are working at a great organization. You're probably very proud of what you do. Where do you see this organization going over the next couple of years as we transition hopefully away from the pandemic and into a new chapter in our world? I know. I'm really proud of how our organization's been able to respond to the pandemic and make sure we were still there to support teachers. Our inherent model, the way Donors Choose works and and why it's really different from other crowdfunding sites is not only because it's by teachers for teachers. It was founded by Charles Best, who was a public teacher himself 20 years ago in the Bronx. And he started this organization out of his classroom. But the other thing that makes us different is that we actually ship materials to the classroom once a project gets funded. So we're not giving the teacher cash or credits in some way. Instead, we're actually drop shipping those materials in partnership with vendors. And the reason our model is set up that way is because it ensures that if you're a donor and you don't know a teacher that you want to connect with on our site, that you trust that your money is going exactly where you think it is, that it's going to fund that specific Harry Potter book, let's say, that you wanted to put those dollars behind. So we've done a lot. I've been really proud of how we've pivoted this year where we used to ship all those materials to schools. This year, we've put a lot of integrity measures in place to enable us to be able to ship those also to other locations for teachers if they're teaching from home or or they want to send something directly to a student. So the first thing we're going to do next year is just figure out how to come back to where we were before. And I think like a lot of other businesses, take the good things that we were able to question and change in this unusual year and apply them and figure out how we could be doing our, our regular business or whatever that means, right, in the future better. More loftily, you know, our team has been talking a lot about our focus on equity and how we can do even more to grow the number of teachers who are in the highest need communities across the U.S., especially in classrooms where the students are primarily students of color. And so we're going to continue to really focus on that lofty goal in the years ahead as we think about growing as an organization and increasing the support. I think that's beautiful. We are all about that on this show. We are all about supporting different groups, especially with everything that's been going on as of late. So let's talk to the teacher that's listening right now and saying, hey, I think that'd be cool to get a little bit of help. Where should they go to learn more about how to do that? Well, hello to any teachers out there. We are your biggest fans here at Donor Shoes. And a lot of what we think of as our job is channeling the voices of teachers since we have over 100,000 teachers use our site every year. So I'm really happy uh, if you're on here and you're a teacher. Make sure that you visit donorschoose.org backslash teachers. And you will be able to see a lot of information about how to get started, how to create your first project 
a teaser that for your first project, you get a match code for donations for your first week are matched. So get on there. And, and I'll also say Teacher Appreciation Week is a big moment for us in terms of donations when it comes to that first week of May. So if you're a teacher, you've been debating whether to create your first Donors Choose project, now is a really good time to do it, knowing that that big moment's coming up in, in a month or two. Excellent. Very cool. And then for parents that are listening, we've got a good group that shows up every week that really loves to hear content like this. Where can they go if they're looking to support teachers and put their dollars towards an organization that they're proud of? So what's fun about Donors Choose is that teachers in 75% of public schools across the U.S. have used our site. So what I tell someone who wants to support a project or a specific community is get on the site, search for your hometown, search for where you live today, search for a book you loved as a kid or something that you know is meaningful to you and choose that project and give any amount that you can, right? In this moment where we're all having our own considerations and personal experiences and with the economic challenges that are out there, even $5 makes a huge difference. And at Donor Shoes, we treat every donor like a big donor, right? Where you get that entire transparency of experience of where those $5 or $20 or $100 went in support of a specific classroom. Andy, I was looking at your at your website a little bit before this and noticed that you had given some tips about charitable giving strategies and how to make lasting family traditions out of generosity. And I loved that post. It looked like a ton of fun. I was telling Andy my my kids are, are a little bit little for this right now, but probably in the future. But one thing we often hear people doing with Donors Choose, whether for a kid's birthday or a certain time of year or the holidays, is buying a gift card and actually having their kid participate in philanthropy. So having them choose the project on Donors Choose. And the way our model works when you make a donation, you leave a comment for the teacher and then the teacher writes back and then you see they write an impact letter and share photos later of the kids using those materials. So it's this really powerful experience to allow your kid to participate in giving back as well if that's something that applies to or is interesting to you. Absolutely. Well, thank you for checking out the site. I really love putting that together. Unfortunately, it's like one of my least read posts, but it's probably one of my favorite ones that I've put together as well as these types of interviews as well. So Abby, thank you for your passion. Thank you for doing something for our country and our community that really lifts people up. I'm really proud to speak to you today. Thank you very much. So nice to be here. Thanks for having me. As a quick reminder, everybody, this show is for entertainment purposes only. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific financial situation. Before we go for the day, I'd love to ask you to do one quick thing to support the show. Please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help more people to find this show. To encourage you to leave a review, each month we do a book giveaway. So we received six reviews since last month's book giveaway offer. And as a reminder, this quarter, we are going to be giving away three different book options from past podcast guests. Those are as follows. You Need a Budget by Jesse Meacham. And the second one is The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money by Jill Schlesinger. And the last one is Aaron Lowry's book, Broke Millennial Takes On Investing. And to help me pick the winner this week, I've got my assistant Zoe Hill here once again. So Zoe, before we get into that review that we were talking about, I thought we'd do another money quiz. What do you think? What was that? Huchwa? 
Kuchiwa. Okay, I'm pretty sure that's in some other language that means yes. All right, cue the game show music. Let me explain the rules to you once again, Miss Zoe. I'm going to ask you three questions for mm-hmm. money quiz. Mm-hmm. And for each one that you get correct, I will transfer $1 onto transfer your debit card. Debit card. For fun. All right, let's get into the first question. You ready, Zoe? Drum roll, please. Zoe, question number one. What does negotiation mean and why is it important to do? (laughs) So let's say, according to me, I want to play a game with my friends. Mm -hmm. But somehow this pops up on my phone. You've reached your screen time limit. (laughs) (laughs) You've reached your screen time limit. (laughs) And so I went upstairs and I'm like, Daddy, can I please have one more hour to play with my friends? And he's like... So I'm like, well, because I want to, because if I play with my friends, I can't be like, oh, I have to go for the day. Goodbye. Cause like stuff like that. And another reason is if you really, really, really want to go somewhere, you can negotiate it out. Like, hey, if I go here, then I promise I'll bring my watch and I'll like check a time and I'll come home at the exact same time. Okay, so when you do negotiations, if I hear this correctly, you are asking for something that you want, and then how does the other person in the negotiation, why do they want to do it for you? If you negotiate good, like according to my brother, Cameron, he stays up playing with his Beyblades all night in his room. Mm -hmm. And... Sometimes he comes in mom's room and I come in mom's room and then there's no room for me. So once I negotiated that I should sleep in mama's room without Calvin. But then mama's like, no. And so I find, I'm like, fine, I'll bring a mattress in here for Calvin. And I promise I'll clean it all up in the morning. And he's like, if you sure you're going to clean it all up? And I'm like, yes, all up. And then mom is like, okay. So that's good. So so you ask for something that you want, and then the other person kind of meets you in the middle, right? And you can yes. find a middle ground? Yes. All right. I think that's a correct answer. Congratulations, Zoe Hill. You get $1 for defining negotiation with a good example. Thank you very much. And I appreciate that you do negotiation around the house because... If you don't ASK. You don't G-E-P-T. G-E-P-T? Gept? Yeah. <laughs> it's called gept. Gept. People, people right. just don't say people They don't just say don't get say anymore? Gept. All right. They, they only say get. It's short for gept. I got it. All right, let's move on to question number two. Zoe, you have a new debit card. Why is it important for you to keep that debit card in a safe place. It's important to keep it in a safe place. Well, it's very unlikely, but if a burglar came into your house and somehow was like, give me all your money, she would check all the bedrooms, bathrooms, door rooms, kitchen, sinks, uh, whatever, and stuff like that, closets. Um, They would look for most valuable things. So in most hotels, they have this safe so if, like, somebody somehow, it's very unlikely, again, got your key, 
they could have came in and stole your valuable stuff. So I think that's why they put the safe in there. Mm-hmm. And it's also important to keep it in a place because if you have a little sibling, they might, you know, <laughs> spend it. And I mean, what would they do with it? Oh, Calvin probably buy all of the Beyblade he wants. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Keep your debit card safe because somebody might use it and spend on stuff that they want instead of the things you want. All right. You get another dollar in your bank account. Congratulations, Zoe Hill. Two correct answers. Let's move on to question number three. This past week, we celebrated our quarterly big give. Yes, yes, yes. And that is a tradition that we do together once a quarter to... And uh, I gave to cute little dolphins in Wildlife Foundation. That's right. Yeah, you like the WWF, the World Wildlife Foundation. Yes. So if if a kid is listening right now with their mommy or daddy and they want to find a charity to give to, what advice would you give them to find that charity? Well, each like three months, we have something called the Big Give. We have a jar, now digital jars, where we put money in it. And at the end of the three weeks, we choose which charity we want to give to. So I take all the money out of my give, my dad doubles it, and we give it to that charity. So how do you decide what charity you want to give to then? Well, I love animals, so I guess it's pretty obvious I want to give to animals. Oh, okay. So if somebody's listening right now... Would they maybe just think about something that they're very passionate about? Yeah. Okay. Like maybe houses or stuff like that. What does Calvin give to? Roofs. He likes to give roofs to people who don't have homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. All right, so I guess think about what you're passionate about. Is that your answer then? Yeah. Awesome. Congratulations. So you got another one, right? Number three. That is three dollars well, in Daddy. your account. Congratulations. Yeah. And if you are listening with your kids, I would love to hear that. If you want to leave us I a review it. and tell us that you're listening with your children, I think that would make Zoe and I smile so much. Speaking of reviews, why don't we jump into yeah. that review? Alexa, pick a number between one and six. Your random number between one and six is three. Excellent. Well, our third review comes in from Shaylee Miller. And Shaylee, thank you very much for leaving this awesome review called Real Family and Financial Advice, which is awesome. Thank you. Let's let Zoe read this review. Real Family and Financial Advice. I love the realness of this podcast. Some financial advisor podcasts spend more time telling you what you're doing wrong than they do actually advising. Here I know I'll get a real life valid advice from a family perspective and a few laughs along the way. I'm invested in the Brenna and Wine episodes. The banter between you and your wife are hilarious along with the offering of different yet valid points of view. However, episodes with Zoe have become my absolute favorite. Love, love, love. (laughs) Keep it up. Oh, that's awesome. Shaylee, thank you so much. And Zoe loves that review as well, don't you, baby? Yeah, I saw a big smile go on your face. Where's emojis? You're going to add emojis to it? Yeah. I'm going to add a heart emoji. Aw. Well, hearts over to you, Shaylee. Thank you so much for doing that and leaving that review. Thank you, Zoe, for reading that longer than normal review, too. We really appreciate that. I think you've gotten. 
If we look back like two years, I think you've gotten really good at reading these reviews. All right, we're going to be doing this again next month, my friends. Same books, same Zoe, and uh, same antics for my little girl. Mm -hmm. Same Zoe with the gargling water in the beginning. I hope her belly feels better. So please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts and take a screenshot of your review and email that screenshotted review to Andy at marriagekidsandmoney.com or post your Apple Podcast review on social media and tag me at Andy Hill MKM. That would be super cool to see it on there. And we really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for watching, everybody. Now I must go and check the money on my debit card. Goodbye. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Make sure it's there, right? (laughs) Make sure there's money in it. April, we have a fantastic month for you coming up here, chock full of family financial empowerment. April 12th, next Monday, is author Jennifer Barrett. She's going to discuss how female breadwinners can earn more and worry less, and in turn, how their spouses can support them. The week after that, April 19th, we have a packed episode with a listener question, a millionaire success story from John from the Pacific Northwest, a listener of the show, and a chat about socially responsible investing and if it pays well to do good. And then the Monday after that, we've got Peter Dunn, aka Pete the Planner. He's going to discuss setting up your family for a happy and wealthy future. And of course, every Friday, you're going to hear more bread and wine episodes with my wife, Nicole. If you have not heard that yet, this is a candid chat between a husband and a wife. And we don't always agree on financial stuff or money issues, but we do have a good time chatting about it and finding a good middle ground and enjoying some wine on the way. So check it out. And you can check us out live on YouTube as well on Friday evenings. Or if you are a podcast listener, just keep listening to the podcast because that shows up there as well. Thank you all so much for listening to that show and supporting us. March was our best month ever on the show for podcast downloads. So thank you again for listening, supporting this small business of ours and oh, goofing around with us along the way. (laughs) Thank you. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Unknown. If you chase two rabbits, both will escape. Commit to your decision, see it through, and move on, my friends. Carpe diem!